I want to welcome you back to our sermon series, Here Comes Heaven, Our Promised Messiah. What a, what a cool thing to focus on, Christ's miraculous supernatural birth. It changes everything. It truly does. And um, with each Christmas season, we spend time focusing on that miracle and all its implications and this uh, season, we're taking a bit of a unique approach. And so instead of just looking at the birth narrative in the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew, we are also going back to the Old Testament and looking at the Christmas story through the eyes of the Old Testament prophets because they promised long ago that Jesus would be born. They promised long ago that a Messiah would come, that God would send a Messiah um, to save the world. They talked about where he would be born. They talked about uh, what his ancestry would be. They talked about how he would be born of a virgin. They talked about the name that would be given to him and all the amazing things that, that he would do. And what's remarkable, and I mentioned this last week, is that the chances of any one man just fulfilling eight of those prophecies is not one in a million, not one in a billion, not one in a tri trillion, but one in 100 quadrillion. That was the chance of any one man fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies. And Jesus has filled them all, not just eight of them, to a T. It's just remarkable. And so... What we did is last week we looked at Matthew chapter 1, and that took us back then to Isaiah chapter 7. And in those two passages of Matthew 1 and Isaiah 7, God was asking us the question, will you trust me? Do you remember that question? Will you trust me? That's the question that God asked throughout the entire storyline of the Bible to all of the people that are included in the Bible, he's constantly asking when you really zero in on what he's doing, he's asking people to trust him. We talked about that God is worthy of our trust. I even encourage you by sending you an email and I said, hey, look at these promises on these two sheets every morning before you start your day. And I hope some of you took that challenge on, because we've got to remember who we are in Christ, right, and the promises that he has given us, and that allows our heart to, to trust him. This morning, we're going to be looking at, mass, uh, at, at the passage Matthew 2, and that's going to take us back to the Old Testament prophecy uh, in Micah 5, so that's where we're going to head this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll start our look at Matthew 2 and Micah 5. Lord, what a privilege it is to be here with your family and to be gathered together to reflect on you coming to be with us, you coming to move into our neighborhood, to take on our sorrow, to take on our grief, to take on our struggle, to take on our sin so that we could experience rescue. It is the greatest story that's ever been told. And ever will be told. And Lord, we are thankful that you will return again. And that uh, when you return, you will decisively defeat evil 
once and for all. And actually, you did that at the cross. But you're, when you return, you're going to decisively <laughs> remove evil from your good world forever. And we, we praise you for that. Lord, as we look at the scripture passages that uh, you've directed us to this morning, open the eyes of our heart, help us to focus, help us to zero in on what question you might be asking us this morning that we're going to be talking about. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. All right, Matthew 2, 2 through 12, Jim read it, but it's worth reading again, and as always, I encourage you to to really lock in here and think about, put yourself in this passage. Put yourself in the position of the wise man. Put yourself in the position of Herod, of Mary, of Joseph. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So... In this passage, you have the wise men pursuing the Messiah. The scriptures don't tell us much about the wise men, so we don't really know a lot about them. We don't know exactly where they're from. We don't really know their backgrounds. Um, The Greek word that's behind a wise men in this passage is the Greek word magos. And magos was a word that was used back then to describe people that dabbled in astrology, people that dabbled, dabbled in uh, fortune-telling, dream interpretation. They're, that word was also used to describe teachers and priests. So we don't know, <laughs> in terms of the wise men, which one, which kind of area they specialized in, but it seems from the passage that astrology was one of those disciplines that they they focused on and maybe they focused on a mixed a mix of these these disciplines so these wise men 
they may have come from Arabia, they may have come from Egypt, Persian, Persia, Babylon. We don't know for sure even where they came from. But here's what uh, one guy says in his book. It's called Christmas from the, the Backside. Uh, the guy's name is Ellsworth Kalas, and he writes this. Perhaps these wise men were driven by a combination of faith and hope. He says this, the late British scholar William Barclay, Barclay reminds us that there was a strange sense of expectancy in the world in those centuries. Suetonius, Tacitus, and Josephus, which by the way, these are ancient Roman and Jewish historians, all say that the belief was abroad that a universal ruler was to arise in Judea. So Barclay says, and you can check this out, when, the G- Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ came into this world, the world was in an eagerness of expectation. Men were waiting for God. They had discovered that they could not build the golden age without God. And so maybe these wise men finally got to the point where they just realized that there was no way that man's efforts alone even intelligent men like themselves was going to be able to make the world right. They couldn't fix the world's problems. That in order for people to, in humanity, to, to have purpose and, and peace and power, there's got to be something from the outside that comes in and, 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 and makes that happen. Heaven would have to come down. Heaven would have to come down. In and of ourselves, we can't figure it out. Humanity can't get it right. And maybe the wise men were familiar enough with the Hebrew prophets that spoke of a Jewish ruler that would come and do that, that they actually believed that this would would happen, that a Jewish ruler would come and fix the broken world. So we don't know for sure who the wise men were exactly. We don't know their backgrounds. We don't even know really their motivations for pursuing the Messiah. But in our passage, we find them doing that. And when they found Jesus, they fall on their face and they worship him and they offer him the best of what they have to offer, expensive gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then... In this passage, there's King Jesus, or not King Jesus, of course there's King Jesus, there's King Herod in this passage. And King Herod, we know a lot more about him than we do the wise men. On behalf of the Romans, King Herod, he was ruling over Judea, and he was viewed as king of the Jews, king of Israel. Israel was his turf, and we know that Herod was a brilliant guy in a lot of ways. He had this great ability to amass wealth from his people, and then he went on, used that wealth to to build a whole bunch of different structures in his kingdom. Um, he, He built great and wonderful, amazing things. Herod was also not only brilliant, but he was fearful and he was insecure. He greatly feared losing his rule over his small portion of the Roman Empire. He was paranoid about that. He was so insecure and fearful that he was also insanely brutal. 
Herod was a brutal man, especially when it came to guarding his, guarding his throne. In fact, Herod had his wife <laughs> murdered, his wife's mother murdered. He murdered three of his sons, all because he viewed them as a threat to his throne. The guy was crazy, so crazy that the emperor Augustus said it, it would be safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be his son. And as word got out that the king of the Jews, this new king of the Jews, had been born, it's no surprise to us that Herod just flipped a lid. He goes crazy, right? And we see what he does. He's bound and determined that he's going to stamp out this supposedly new king of the Jews. And so he's got to find, he's got to locate this threat and eliminate it. And so he pulls together the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, and he says, where, basically, he says, where is this baby at? Where is this baby located? And they inform him about the prophet Micah and Micah's prophecy that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, why does Matthew include this prophecy of, of Micah's and, and that the wise men um, tell Herod about? Or the chief priests and scribes tell Herod about? I think for several reasons. The first is this. I think Matthew simply wants to record what happened around the, the, you know, the events that, that happened and when Jesus was born. Secondly, I think he wants all, Matthew wants all who read his gospel to know that Jesus did fulfill the prophecy so that, he, so that his audience can know, he wants us to know, that Jesus truly is this promised Messiah. He, he was pro, it was promised that he would be born in Bethlehem, and then Jesus was. Now, I think there are some other reasons, too, that, that uh, you know, the, there were prophecies that Jesus would, or the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, and Bethlehem was located in Judah, that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David, and King David was from Bethlehem. That the, you know, so there's there's some other there's some other prophecies that Matthew wants to make sure that we see with this location of where he was born that Jesus fulfills them. But as important as those reasons are, I think the reason, the main reason that Matthew quotes Micah and he mentions Bethlehem. Is, is for another reason, and, and let me explain this. So Bethlehem was a really small, tiny village of about 500 people. So it was just this little podunk town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it was very considered just insignificant among the clans of Judah. It was not a town bustling with commerce and people and buildings and businesses and art like the other big cities of the world, such as Rome. It was a humble town. And yet from this little insignificant town, God the Father brings the most significant person that has ever lived, his very own son. Look at Micah's prophecy in its original context, Micah 5, 2 through 5. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephathratha, uh, 
Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Here's the connection that I think Micah and I think God and I think Matthew wants us to make when we look at the wise men and as we look at King Herod and as we look at Bethlehem, the town that God used for the miracle of his, his incarnation. In the person of Jesus, heaven came down for everyone. In the person of Jesus, heaven indeed came down for everyone. And to experience the kingdom of heaven that Jesus, the Messiah, ushered in, that brought, to experience the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, the peace, the joy, the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy of heaven, one thing is required, one thing and one thing only. Herod didn't have it, but the wise men had it. Rome didn't have it, but Bethlehem did. And it's the opposite of what the world will tell you that you need in order to be accepted. It is. The kingdom of the world tells you that in order for you to be accepted, you must come from a certain family. If you're, if you're from a certain family, then doors will open for you. If your last name is Vanderbilt or Rockefeller or Hilton or Kardashian, the, the door will open for you, right? God is saying, I don't care what family you're from. I don't care what your last name is. The kingdom of the world tells you that you got to be from a particular race, then you'll be accepted. You know, if you're white and from a middle-class background, then you'll be accepted. God's saying, I don't care what race you're from. The world says, you know, if you're highly skilled in a particular area, then you'll get into places you want to get into. If you can shoot a basketball really well, if you can throw a football really well, if you have an amazing singing voice with a great tone and a great range, if you can have very innovative thoughts, if you're great at design, then doors will be open for you. And God says, I don't care how talented you are. The kingdom of the world says, hey, if you look a certain way, then you'll be accepted. If you're cute and trendy and have really white teeth and a nice car and a nice house, then the world will accept you. God says, I don't care how cute or trendy or not cute you are. There's only one thing required. Only one thing to experience this heaven that has come down in the person of Jesus. One thing. What's that one thing? We watched a portion of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation last night. Do you remember the parts where the drum roll, where they're standing outside the house before he's about to play? It's, it's great. <laughs> they're all out there. So I kind of want to drum roll. 
And I wish everybody could make the noise. Like, So here's the one thing. Humility. That's it. Humility. That is the door to the kingdom of heaven. God will accept you and he will use you so long as you possess humility. That's the connection I think God wants us to make with the passage of Matthew 2 that talks about the prophecy of Micah 5 that talks about Bethlehem. That's the connection, humility. If you're part of the in crowd and you possess humility, God will use you. If you're an outcast and you're, you're marginalized and you're on the outskirts and you possess humility, God will use you. Humility is directly opposed to pride. Look, the Christmas message, it will do one of two things to people. It's either going to smother your pride or it will cause your pride to flare up. It will do one of the two. It tells you, the Christmas message tells you that you are so flawed and so sinful and so screwed up that you can't fix yourself. That you cannot make your, yourself acceptable to God. You are so messed up, and I'm so messed up, that heaven had to come down to make you right, to make you acceptable. Look, in some ways, the gift of Jesus is like sitting there with your family on Christmas morning and <laughs> someone giving you for presents breath mints, a diet book, deodorant, and a book on anger management. That's what it's like. It calls out your brokenness and it invites you to swallow your pride. So, in order to receive the gift of Jesus, you gotta you gotta admit, you gotta humbly admit you're messed up and you can't fix yourself. In order for the wise men to come down uh, t- to Bethlehem or over or up wherever they came from, and to fall at his feet, a baby, and to worship him and offer the best of what they had, they had to possess humility. They had to view this baby as greater than them, above them, better than them. It required humility. In this message, that the Christmas message totally goes at your pride, infuriates the Herods of the world. Because the Herods of the world will say this, what do you mean that I'm messed up? What do you mean I can't fix myself? I'm doing just fine, thank you. I don't need that Jesus stuff, right? The Christmas message makes the pride in a Herod flare up all the more. You see, the, the Christmas message also assaults our pride because it tells us that Jesus is his king and we are not. And if Jesus is king, that means... You owe everything to him. 
and you should serve him with everything you've got. And that means if Jesus is king, he gets to tell you how you spend your time, how you spend your money, where you live, where you work. He owns you if he is the king of the universe. Now this too infuriates the prideful Herods of the world. What do you mean I can't spend my money how I want to and spend my time how I want to? I've worked hard. I've earned it. It's my right. It's my life. The wise men had the humility to see that Jesus was the true king of the world and therefore deserved their best, and God used them. Think, the wise men were able to see for themselves, live and in person, the incarnation. They were some of the very first worshipers of the true Messiah and king of the world. God used them. And the Bible is full of pages that contain humble people that God uses, people that possess humility that God then works through. Abraham was a nobody, and God used him. He was nobody special. Why? He possessed the humility to follow God. Esther was somebody. She was really good looking, the Bible tells us. She was the the wife of a powerful king, and God used her because she possessed humility. David was the scrawniest of his brothers, and God used him because of his the humility in his heart. And I could go on and on with examples. God uses the significant and the insignificant so long as there is humility. But he especially likes using the insignificant in the world's eyes. And, and, And that's a dominant theme in the scriptures. You see, the Christmas message, it is a comfort and it is a challenge. It's a comfort because it tells you that you don't have to be exceptional for God to accept you into his kingdom and to enjoy King Jesus as your king and all the blessings and the inheritance that comes with it. You simply need humility that causes you to acknowledge your sinfulness, repent of it, and turn to Jesus, trusting that he has done everything through his life, his death, and his resurrection to free you from sin and make you acceptable to God doesn't matter how shameful your past is. doesn't matter how badly you've messed up. doesn't matter how badly you've hurt others. Christ, he is waiting with open arms, ready to embrace those who will come to him in humility. And those who do come to him in humility, God will use them. That's the comfort of the Christian message. It's beautiful, so beautiful. But the Christmas message is also a challenge. Himself that he, Jesus is either a liar because he knew the truth about himself, that he wasn't the Messiah, but told everybody that he was. He's a lunatic, or he's a lunatic because he wasn't the Messiah, but really thought he was, and so was delusional. Or he is Lord. He really is who he said he was. Those are our options. And that means Jesus is either someone to run away from, or he is someone 
to bow down in complete surrender and submission to. There are too many people, I feel like, in our country, in our society, that say they believe in Jesus, but their life is unaffected by him. They do their own thing. Their life hasn't been revolutionized. Jesus doesn't give you that option. He doesn't. You can't. Jesus, he's either crazy and somebody to completely run away from, a liar to, to make, create as much distance between him and you as possible, or he is truly the Lord of all. And if he is Lord, then you can't have this wishy-washy, I believe in him, but my life isn't really changed by him. I don't live any differently. That makes no sense at all. And Amer- many, I think, people want to live in that kind of wishy-washy ground. Look, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all in your life. He isn't. Because that means you are still calling the shots. You are still deciding what he can be in control of or what he can't be in control of. Who's the Lord in that situation? You're the Lord. At best, Jesus, you're trying to treat him as a consultant. We've talked about this. Jesus doesn't want to be your consultant. He won't be your consultant. And if you only allow Jesus to have certain control of certain areas of your life, then you are living in pride. Because what you're saying to Jesus is, hey, I'll trust you with these things, but I trust myself more than I trust you in these areas, in my marriage, in my finances, with my children, and we could go on. Maybe you're here, and you've been operating in this middle ground for some time. You have some skin in the game, but you're not all in when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is asking you this morning, will you... Like the wise men, humbly come to me and worship and offer to, offer to me all that you are and all that you have. Or will you take that self-holding or self-withholding, self-reliant path, prideful path of Herod, and you have a choice? That's the question God's asking us this morning. Will you surrender and humbly give me all that you are and all that you have? And there's a warning here in this passage. If we take the path of Herod, we're going to be conformed to the image of Herod. Herod was insecure. He was frightened. He was unstable. He was extremely selfish. He was narcissistic. He was a user and abuser of people. You know, those who live independent from God, they find with each passing day, they become a little more conformed to the image of Herod. 
little by little by little by little. But those who submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord, what they find is that little by little by little, they're conformed into the image of Christ. You know, we've all got a little Herod in us. We're all little Herods. But that little Herod in us, when we come in humility to King Jesus, starts to wilt, and then it eventually crumbles, and then it starts to disintegrate. That is the power of God's Spirit at work within us. The person that's being conformed into the image of Christ, they will find that they become more secure and at peace in God's love, more satisfied and content as they receive God's love, more focused on other people's needs, more grateful because of the grace that they've been given, less snobby because they realize that they're just as broken as the next person. They care less and less about what others think about them. They're more focused on displaying God's glory instead of trying to steal God's glory for themselves. They become more patient because they realize that God's in control of everything. And his timing is always perfect. They become more patient in suffering because they know that God is even using that in his sovereignty for their good and for the good of people in their lives. They look forward to the future rather than fear it because they know their inheritance is to it all secure and they will receive it. That we would all, oh, that we would all choose the path of humility before Jesus. And you know what pains my heart? This is what pains my heart. There's quite possibly people here this morning, and if people listen to this online, that will hear this message, and yet they will still choose the path of Herod. That breaks my heart. And one day they're going to hear from Jesus as they stand before him. I never knew you. Depart from me. You cursed into the everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. May it not be you. Humbly submit to Jesus. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Today, we get to remember Jesus' humility by taking uh, communion, participating in the Lord's Supper. And I love how theologian J.I. Packer puts what we're about to celebrate, especially as we think of Christmas and the miracle of the Incarnation For the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant to love, it meant love to the uttermost for unlovely men. Remarkable. So today as we take the Lord's Supper, I want you 
to remember our humble king that came to serve rather than to be served, that humbled himself and made himself poor so that we could become rich, that emptied himself so that we could be filled, that was despised and rejected so that we could be loved and accepted even though none of us deserved it because we're all little Herods. Come, oh come, let us adore him. In humility, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Are you trusting in his life and death and resurrection to free you from the penalty of sin, to free you from the power of sin, and to one day free you from the very presence of sin? If you have, we invite you to take communion with us. If you haven't come to Jesus in this humble way, do so now. And then join us in the Lord's Supper. Simply cry out to God right there in your seat. Tell him to come in. Ask him to forgive you. Tell him and ask him to teach you how to follow him and live for him and to surrender all to him. And... I also encourage you this Christmas season to humbly serve the people in your life. Mirror Christ in how you interact with your family, with your friends, especially those that are unlovely and hard to love. How can you humbly serve them without snobbery? without thinking that you have it more together or that you're better. Will the elders and deacons come forward to serve, please?